You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Maybe it was yesterday or weeks ago or just getting your kids here for church felt like that. Uh, When was the last time God used you to accomplish something great? Now, I might even add something great for him or for his kingdom. Now, here's what I know. If I were to take a, a, some sort of rating on a scale of one to 10, you know, you know, you remember the last time or you don't remember the last time. 10 means, yeah, it was recent and it was awesome. And one means I don't remember at all. I would guess we would find everybody in this room to be one number or another. Every single number on that spectrum would be taken up with people who experience God moving in their life on a regular basis to people who aren't sure. Maybe your description is, that's why I'm here today, pastor. Like, I just don't know what God is doing in my life or if he cares or if he's paying attention. What I want to do is I want to kind of invite you into the story of God today. And I want to ask you to turn with me to the book of Exodus. It's the second book in the whole Bible. It'd be one of the easiest books to find because it's the second. If you don't know how to use a Bible, no stress. It'll all be on the screen here for you today. But Exodus chapter three, and let me set the stage for the story we're talking about today. So there's this guy and his name is Moses. And uh, Moses was born in a turbulent time in a traumatic childhood home. Moses, when he was a little baby, there was a decree put out by Pharaoh. Pharaoh was the leader of Egypt. Pharaoh was very concerned about the way the Israelites were growing. And so he passed a law saying, let's kill all the little boys who were born to the Israelites. Now, what happened was many of the Egyptian midwives, which is basically like a doula today. I don't know how to describe that, but they didn't do what they were supposed to do in many situations. And Moses was one of those situations. So when Moses was born, they didn't kill him right at birth. Instead, they allowed him to live. They handed him back to mama. Mama raised him for a little bit, but then there's only so long that you can hide a child. If you have kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And so they eventually, his mom put him in a basket and floated him down the river and watched from a distance as he makes it to the Pharaoh's daughter's little for lack of a better phrase, bathing area. And she sees him and grabs him and snatches him up and realizes quickly this is a baby, maybe even connects dot back to her dad and what's going on, and she takes the baby into her home. Because Moses' sister's watching, she runs up and says, hey, do you want me to get a Hebrew woman who could take care of him? And through God's blessing, this little boy ends up back with mom and she takes care of him for a season, but he spends the rest of his life being raised in Pharaoh's home. He gets the best education, he gets the best of resources, and what scripture tells us is Moses is kind of like on a mission from God. God has been watching out for and taking care of this little baby since he was just a little baby. I probably didn't say that the way I meant to, but anyway... He's been watching out for this man since he was a little baby. Now, this is all set up for what happens next. Because when Moses is roughly 40 years old, he gets an idea in his heart. Acts chapter 70, look at verses like 20 to 30. He gets this idea in his heart, which you should probably read that maybe God is inspiring Moses' story. He gets this idea in his heart. You know what? I'm gonna go see what's going on with my people. And when he gets to his people, the Israelites, who were slaves in Egypt, he sees tremendous pain and suffering in their lives. In fact, that day, he sees one of the Egyptian taskmasters abusing his people. And so what Moses does is he overthrows the taskmaster, eventually kills him, and then he's all puffed up on pride. He buries him in the sand and thinks he got away with it. And he thinks in his own heart, we're told, he thinks that God is going to use him to do something great in the world. And the truth is, God had every intention of using Moses to do something great in the world. The problem is, Moses is on Moses' way of doing it and not on God's. And so what God is going to do is lead Moses through a journey. 
Moses, when word gets out shortly thereafter that the Pharaoh has found out that he killed one of the taskmasters, Pharaoh is now out for his pound of flesh. You can read all this for yourself in Exodus 1 and 2. And so Moses runs as far away as he can, and he ends up in a land called the Midians with the Midianites. And uh, when he's out there, you see that Moses is really a guy who cares about social injustices. When he gets out there, there's a well, and there's some men who are harassing these women at the well. Well, he chases them off, and he feeds the flock of these women. They take him home. Now he's got a home. He's got a job. He ends up marrying one of those ladies there that day, one of the daughters of Midian, and he spends the next 40 years of his life in with the Midianites out in the wilderness. So 40 plus 40, simple math, 50, right. So <laughs> he ends up at roughly 80 years old. Now we got to put this in context. So 80 back then, kind of like Moses lives till he's 120. And so you got to do a little bit of juggling with math here. So 80 back then might be like our 50 or 60 today in terms of Moses's health and energy and vitality. He's an older guy, but he's not like 80. We would think of where he's in the last chapter of his life. He's probably in the next to last two thirds of the way, maybe through his life at that point. So we're going to pick up now and uh, Exodus chapter three, go with me. Verse one. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flocks to the far side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. This would not be uncommon as uh, shepherds would take their flocks. They'd be going and looking for greener pastures and green grasses. This is actually Bible verses coming to life in front of you. Some of the Old Testament about uh, sheep grazing away. And it's just, it's just normal. So he's leading the flocks, trying to find green pastures. He comes to Horeb, the mountain of God, and he notices something. There, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up. I love this. It's like watching a, a, like a narrated story, narrated, narrated. I'm making up words left and right. Don't worry, we're not done today. Making up, it's like watching a narrated story, right? You're hearing this picture and then Moses thinks, I will go see this sight. So he goes over to the tree. Now, let's stop there for a second because we learned something important about Moses that we're about to get some conflicting evidence on. But the first thing we learned about Moses is Moses is not afraid. And here's why I say that. So if I were, again, to survey the room, here's what I would find. If you were to be out in the wilderness and you were to see a bush on fire, you would, like anybody, like Moses, you would watch it for a little bit and be like, well, that's weird and cool at the same time. But then when the bush kept burning and didn't go away, like sooner or later the fire should die down, you would from afar go, that's not normal. I wonder what's going on. Now, if I were to survey the room, some of you would say, nope, I saw enough. It's time to move on, sheep. Some of you would say, oh, no, no, we got to go see what's going on. And it's somewhere in between. Well, Moses is the bold kind who says, you know what? I need to know what's up. Let's go see this thing. So he goes over to see the bush that's burning and not burning up. And here's what happens when he gets there. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush. And in his best Mufasa voice, he says, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. I love that. Moses, uh, in case you can't find me, I'm right here. I'm here. Now, what's going on? First of all, did you notice that God called Moses by name? You know, Moses, when you were just a little baby and they were killing babies, 
You know, Moses, when you were in Pharaoh's home, ripped away from your family, you know, Moses, when you got enraged and you killed the taskmaster, remember when you were afraid and ran from your life? Remember when you came out to the wilderness not knowing what was gonna happen next? Were you gonna die out here? Remember when you got your wife and now your little boys? I've been watching all along, Moses, and I know your name. See, when God interacts with us, it's not from a distance, it's not from afar, it's from personal relationship. He doesn't say, hey, dude with the sheep, come here. Moses, come here. But when Moses goes up, notice in verse five, do not come any closer, God says. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. What God is doing with Moses, and he does throughout the story, we don't have time to cover it all, what he does through the whole thing is he's setting as a priority the relationship between God and Moses. I'm God, you're Moses. In case there's any confusion, let's get this established right off the bat. You are in front of a miracle, a bush that's on fire, but it's not burning. And Moses, take off your sandals. Where you're standing is holy. The word holy in Hebrew is the word kadosh. Kadosh literally means set apart by God for God's purposes. So when the bush stops burning and God leaves the bush, that will no longer be a holy bush. It'll be a bush. The mountain is called the mountain of God, and the people of Israel actually do go back and worship God on that mountain. So in that regard, you could argue that that is a holy mountain, but it's still just a mountain. People could go to that mountain today and visit the mountain. The reality is, in this moment, the mountain's holy because the presence of God showed up and changed the entire perspective of the bush and of the mountain and also of the man named Moses. And then he says this profound thing, and look at verse 6. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. If I had an hour, I'm not sure I could do justice to this text, but I'm gonna give you 30 seconds, which will be an extreme injustice, so give me some grace. Here's what's going on. So I talked earlier this year, January, February, about Abraham. After Easter, I talked a little bit about Isaac and a lot about Jacob. You should go listen to those to give you a little bit better perspective on their stories. But the short version is, at the end of Genesis, God told this very family, Abraham is great-granddad, Isaac is dad, or you say granddad, dad, and then son, Jacob. God told them, your people are going to be in uh, captivity for over 400 years in Egypt. And then I'm going to show up and rescue them. Well, we're now at that moment. So God comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to create a people, the Israelites, out of you. Isaac barely gets, he gets one chapter. He gets other stories, but he gets one chapter. And then Jacob gets a whole bunch of chapters because he's the father of the nation of Israel. In fact, Jacob's name is changed to Israel. So when you hear the Israelites today, that all comes from Jacob. So what God just did in a very brief one sentence, he looked at Moses and said, Moses, I'm about to act in a huge and significant way again today. I the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the one who called them, the one who led them. I'm here and I'm talking to you. And Moses gets it and he's like, oh man, this is big. And he hides his face. Why is he hiding his face? Well, it's a sign of respect and fear. So the man who was not afraid of the bush is afraid of God and he should be. But here's the thing that's about to happen. God is about to reveal to Moses The two realities that we've talked about for the last two weeks. You ready? Here they are. Reality number one, God is at work around you. Right now, God is at work around you. 
And so if God is at work in your family and in your spouse and in your kids and in your neighbors and in your coworkers, if God is at work in all those places, then you ought to also assume that God is also at work where? In their spouses and in their parents and in their kids and in their neighbors, which includes who? You. Which is why reality number two is this. God pursues a continuing love relationship with you that is real and personal. So God is at work in you and God is at work around you. He wants you to love him. He wants you to trust him. He wants you to know him. And he is at work in everybody's lives right now doing that in a profound and significant way. But here's the thing. God is about to let Moses know what God has been up to for all these hundreds of years while the Israelites are suffering. Here's what Henry Blackaby in the book that we've been recommending you read. By the way, the book is uh, Experiencing God. We're gonna put it up here with a quote. Looks like this, although a little less washed out, but experiencing God here, knowing and doing the will of God. I, I, you can still pick one of these up. You can find them online. We put them digitally or right out here at the pallet looking counter right when you walk out these doors straight ahead. You can find a reading schedule. If you're behind, no big deal. Just pick up at week one, wherever you are, just pick up at week one. You can forget the dates on there and just start reading along with us. This book will challenge you and encourage you. I promise you will not regret it. Go get the book today. If you haven't, you didn't start, start it today. It's okay. But what he says here in the book is this. He says, when God starts to do something in the world, God takes the initiative to tell someone what he is doing. Out of his grace, God involves his people in accomplishing his purposes. God is always at work, but here's the thing. God uses real people, you and me, to do his work. Okay, quick test. Let's just look at scripture real quick, okay? When God wanted to do something different in the world and he saved a bunch of animals and he saved Noah's family, who protected the animals and who protected Noah's family? God, right? But who built the boat? Noah. Noah still had to build a boat. When God wanted to warn the Israelites that an army was coming, that if they did not turn to the Lord and return to the Lord and repent of their sin, that the army was going to come and do great damage. And God sent a man named Jeremiah, didn't he? He sent Jeremiah to warn them. When God wanted to then rebuild the temple after Jeremiah warned the people and they didn't repent and then the army came in and wanted to rebuild the temple, God didn't just rebuild the temple with his own hands. He sent a man named Ezra. You'll find that in the Bible book, Ezra. Then when he was ready to rebuild the city, he sent a man named Nehemiah and he rebuilt the actual city walls. And over and over and over again, every time God wants to do something in the world, he sends Real people. So let's take a look. Exodus chapter three, verse seven. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land that is flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites and Hittites and Amorites and Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites. You should be clapping for me. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. There's a lot of ites here. And I have seen the way that the Egyptianites are oppressing them. Four of you are following me here. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Do you know what is so powerful? This is my favorite text in the whole Bible. And I know I say that every week, but I really mean it this time. <laughs> what is so powerful about this is what God just said to Moses. I've not been disengaged. I've not been sleeping. I've not been lazy. I've been listening. I've been watching. And now I'm ready to act. 
What's really profound in all of this is all of the personal pronouns that God uses. You know, remember personal pronouns, right? Like I, me, and my? Let's go back and read those same verses again, and let's just look at all the personal pronouns. Exodus chapter three, verse seven. The Lord said, I have seen the misery of my people, and I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me and I have been, or I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt, my people. So, how many of those refer to Moses? How many words? One. You were wrong. One, right there. You. And it's in the context of who? God. I have seen, I have heard, my people, I watched, I listened, I paid attention, and now I am sending you. So get going. See, Moses was real excited when it was God. Like, I can imagine Moses sitting there with his face hidden down to the ground. He's like, yeah, you go, God. Yeah, that's right. I've seen it too. Yeah, you whoop them Egyptians. You go get them. No, wait, what? <laughs> you, you what? But see, here's what we do when God calls us to do work for him. Surely you don't mean me, right, God? I'm not smart enough, I'm not strong enough, I'm not good enough looking, I'm not fast enough, I don't know enough. Do you know what I've done? When God called me to Kingsway, and that was the conversation I had. God, if you bring me in here, I'm gonna mess this whole thing up. Like, you don't want me, God. I had this list of reasons why God shouldn't use me. Again, Henry Blackaby says, God knows what is going to happen in your community. People are going to experience temptation and crisis and disappointments and hardship. God wants to intercept those lives and bring salvation and blessing to them. Suppose he chose to do that through your life. What if when he came to you, invited you to join him in his redemptive activity, you responded in a self-centered way? Suppose you said, I don't think I could do that. I don't have enough formal education. I'm afraid to speak in public. I don't think I have the experience. And that's exactly what Moses does. Look at verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? If you continue the conversation on in Exodus 3 and then later in 4, what you're going to see is Moses is going to expand on that. He, he's not ready to let the argument go. God, who am I? That's just the beginning thought. Then Moses has his list of, and do you know what I did? Do you know what they're looking to do to me there? And by the way, he's got something wrong. He's like, Lord, I'm not good with speech. We don't know exactly what it means. Some scholars think maybe Moses had a, a stuttering problem, some sort of speech impediment. Maybe he slurred in some way, or maybe it took him a long time to get a word out or a thought out. We don't know. We just know Moses is like, are you kidding? I'm terrible at this. You don't want me. I'm glad you're going. You go find somebody else, and I'll cheer you on from the sidelines, God. Now, this is where most of us can relate with Moses. We have a hard time connecting maybe with a guy who killed somebody, but we don't have a hard time connecting with somebody who's really blown it in their past. But we do have a hard time letting God be God in our lives. And usually, it's because of pride. 
And pride can affect us in two ways. You've got one extreme of pride, and it's haughty pride. And this is what Moses did originally when he killed the taskmaster. Oh, I'm great, and the people are going to think that I'm going to help them. So he kills a guy trying to be great in his own power and strength. But the other side of pride, wounded pride, is just as dangerous. It's the, oh, I don't know, I'm not good enough, oh, I'll never measure up. It's actually the same thing of pride. It's just the other end of the pride spectrum. And now Moses has swung from one to the other. I've never been in the, in the, in the Army or Navy or Air Force or Marines. I've never served in that way. Sometimes I wish I had. But here's what I've been told by my friends who did. What they do is they strip you down and then they build you back up. God has basically been doing that to Moses, but not just in one conversation, but over 80 years. And by the way, he'll continue it for the next 40 until Moses' last breath because God is good to Moses, just like God is good to you and me. Henry Blackaby says this again. And do you see what happens here? The focus is on self. The moment you sense God wants to do something in and through your life, you present him with an extensive list of reasons why he has chosen the wrong person or why his timing is not convenient. That's what Moses did. But we need to seek God's perspective. God, want, God knows we can't do it. He wants to accomplish his purposes through us anyway. God's achieving anything in our life hinges on his presence and activity in us. So this is the point in the conversation where if our friend came to us and they were like, I don't know, I don't know if I could do it, I don't know if I'm good enough, should I go out for that thing, should I try this, should I talk to that person, da, da, da. all those things, you know, we do, we, we go right into Tony Robbins mode. You got this. Come on. You're smart. You're strong. You're, you got this. Like, come on. God's got your back. You're going to go. Come on. Go. Yep, that's what we do, right? Here's God's pep talk. You ready? It's four simple words. Verse 12. And God said, I will be with you. End of pep talk. That's it. You're right. That is five words. Thank you, Jacob. I appreciate that. No math in Bible college. <laughs> I will be with you. By the way, do you know, fast forward to the New Testament, when Jesus is saying goodbye to the disciples, he's died on the cross, he rose from the dead, he's gathered the disciples, they're standing on a mountain. And Jesus says, I want you to go into all nations, make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Just like we've seen in both services, people being baptized. And he says then, and I will be with you to the very end of the age. Jesus is directly quoting back to this moment. It is consistent throughout the Bible, this idea of you as a Christian. Let me just talk to the Christian for a minute, okay? I wanna invite anybody who's not yet a Christian into a relationship with God where you can have what I'm about to describe. But if you're a Christian, you can have confidence, bold faith filled confidence that God is with you, he is for you, and he is in you. You don't have to be anxious. Right before the, 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 our eight o'clock this morning, our gathering there, one of the gentlemen, uh, older gentlemen in our church came to me and he said, I've been reading the book, but I don't get it. I'm confused. And I said, well, help me out. What are you confused about? And he said, I just got done reading the chapter on God Speaks. That's next week's sermon. We'll talk about that more next week. And he said, I'm just confused. What do you mean God Speaks? Like I've never heard a voice before. I'm like, you don't hear those voices in your head? It's just me? Anyway, so I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. And, and I said, tell me more. So I'm just confused. I don't get it. And again, we'll talk more about that next week. But I said, here's the thing. I think God is about to do something crazy awesome in you. You just need to be ready for it. Because God is trying to open your heart and open your eyes to what he's doing in the world in and through you. And he began to tell me about some ministry experiences he had. And he said, you know, I was always anxious when I would go and do these things. I wasn't sure, like, is the things I'm saying the right things to say? Christian, okay, Christian, you can have absolute confidence that when you're speaking, God is speaking through you. 
That doesn't mean you won't ever make a mistake. It just means that your worst day won't be the defining moment of whether God has or has not used you. Your worst day won't be God's worst day because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There's one point where Jesus is trying to give the disciples confidence and he tells them if and when you are arrested and you are put on trial for your faith, take a deep breath, do not have anxiety about what you will say or how you will say it because in that moment, the Holy Spirit is going to speak through you, teaching you what to say. And you're like, wow, what is that like? You know what that's like? That's like when I'm preaching and sometimes in one service or another, I just get this story, this, ver- this word, this illustration. I'm like, I don't know why. I just feel like I need to say this right now. Maybe it's for somebody out there and I'll just share it in that service. And sometimes people come up to me later, write me an email or say something, send me a text or whatever and say, you have no idea that was for me. Like, I can't explain that always. Here's what I know. The Bible tells us there are four kinds of spirits. There is Satan and his minions, call them demons. They're spirits in that way, evil spirits. There is the spirits of this world the Bible talks about and Satan and his minions are influencing the systems of this world. They keep greed and lust and oppression going in the world and the list goes on. But then there's also the spirit inside me, my spirit. And each of you has your spirit. It's what separates us from the animals. And then there is the Holy Spirit, God's spirit active in the world. I guess you could say there's a fifth kind and that there are angelic beings as well. But the point is this. We're told in 1 John to test the spirits, to make sure that they are from and of God. It is possible. When I read Romans, I see this quite clearly. It is possible for me and my human spirit to get in the way of God's Holy Spirit. But here's the thing. There is literally nothing I can do to thwart the plan of God. God is always going to get done everything God has purposed to get done. That gives me confidence as a person to take a deep breath and go, you know what? I don't have to be in charge of anything. I don't own anything. I'm not directing anything. I'm only responsible for being faithful to God in this moment. That's it. That's all I have to do. Yeah, you can clap for God. I don't have time for an illustration, but I, have, I want to give a very, ah, really, I'll give you the short version. Last service, I gave the better one. I don't have time. I'm going to do it anyway. My team loves when I do that. So in the Old Testament, the Israelites begged God for a king, and God said, you don't need a king. I'm your king. After they kept trying and pushing and pushing and pushing, God relented and said, I'll give you a king. So in the book of Samuel, God goes to Samuel and says, warn them first about what a king will do. And Samuel goes for the people and says, if you get a king, he's going to attack you. He's going to take your sons and send them off to war. It's going to be hard. You're not going to have as much money and freedom as you actually thought you would have. And the people said, we need a king. Everybody else in the world has a king. We need a king. So Samuel goes back to God and he's crying in prayer. And God basically says, suck it up. Quit crying. They're not mad at you, Samuel. They've rejected me. And so God gives them a king, and the first king is Saul. And God, that king is terrible, so God removes that king, and he gives another king, David, and he's way better, but he's still got issues. And his son is son of Solomon, and he, is, he brings Israel to a wealth like they've never known, perhaps the wealthiest nation in the history of the world at that time, maybe ever, maybe even more wealthy than America by standards today. I don't know. Then his son completely goes off the deep end. After Solomon later in his life, his heart turns away from God because he starts worshiping false idols. His son, Rehoboam, completely splits the kingdom in two, and almost every king after that is just evil. There are some bright, shining moments in there, but many of them are just dark and evil. And God not once, by the way, dads, practice this one with your kids. God not once looks at the people of Israel and says, I told you so. Not once. In fact, from the moment that God relents and gives them a king, do you know what he does from that moment on? He owns their will, their decision, as if it was always his own. And here's what he says. I'm going to give you a king one day, and he's going to be full of justice and righteousness and peace, and we know him as Jesus. 
It's so powerful to think about this, guys, that even in your worst decision, God will take it and point it back to Jesus. So when he says, I am with you, that's all the pep talk Moses and you and I need. God is with you. And here's the thing. God invites you to become involved in his work. It's his work. I have seen, I have heard, my people, I'm going, so now go. God invites you to become involved with what he is doing in the world. And he's active and involved all around you, and he's pursuing a love relationship with you and with others. And when you believe all these things are true, it does something in you. In fact, throughout the book, there's this little graphic here. We kind of changed these logos because we liked ours better. But there's this little graphic here, and the whole point is this. God is at work in the world, and he's inviting you to obey and experience him. For most of us, though, we don't tend to follow like this. Most of us go through this long relationship thing with God, which is good. It's just that God, because he loves us, has to lead us through these steps. We haven't talked about any of these yet. We're simply back here. So God is at work in the world. He's pursuing a relationship with us and others, and now he's inviting us into his work. And God is working to change our hearts, our perspectives, our attitudes, everything, so that he can do the thing in the world that he has purposed us and created us to do. Paul tells us in Ephesians that God has prepared a good work for us to do. Most of us haven't seen God do great things in us because we're too closed off to the will of God. In fact, uh, earlier this year, I went to Peru with, I think it was 16 other Kingsway people. And we went to uh, the home of hope, or new hope as we call it, in Arequipa, uh, Peru. It was a crazy trip. Uh, there were many great people with many great stories. I'll tell more and more as we go, but I just want to focus in on one particular person. There was a couple that went on the trip. Their name was Chris and Danielle Smalley. Danielle's on staff with us. And so I'm not a detail guy. Anybody who knows me knows I'm not a detail guy. And uh, Danielle was on staff, and she started asking me these questions. I'm like, oh, I don't know. I think da-da-da-da, we'll be okay. So Danielle was like, hey, you know, we got this meeting coming up. Do you want me to put together an outline? Hey, do you want me to call and schedule those things? Hey, do you want me to plan? That was glorious. I mean, I'm like, yes, somebody doing details is great. Well, she would later tell me, she said, Matt, the reason I started doing this is because I knew I was never going to get from you what I needed to feel like I was in control. <laughs> Some of you know, you're laughing. You're like, I know exactly what that feels like. I'm married to that person. So Danielle became my, if you will, right-hand woman for the trip to help make the trip happen. But then God blew her socks off. And here is, from her own words, her story. She said, the stories of what was shared, of what some of the kids at the home had been through, was gut-wrenching. I mean, the stuff these kids at this orphanage had been through were stuff you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy. As I interacted more with the local missionaries, I learned about what life was like for these kids through our team meetings. I started to question what I was going to do, though, in this place. I mean, I get that God has a plan and all, but what in the world was I actually going to do in Peru? I mean, besides help coordinate the short-term mission trip for 16 people, that's totally in my comfort zone. But that first night, our team went outside, and we just started playing volleyball on the court. And there were a few kids outside, and, and as we started playing and getting louder with all laughter and silliness, more of them came out of the homes of the casas to see what we were up to. There was definitely some friendly competition between our church team and more kids joined in to the fun. We had to start breaking into smaller teams for everybody to get a chance to play, and it was a blast. At one point, my team was off the court. I will just add it's because they lost, but regardless, was off the court, and I remember standing on the top row of their bleachers and just watching what was happening. 
We were all just having fun, every single one of us. And it happened so fast, we weren't even on site for 24 hours yet. How amazing was this? Maybe this whole experience wouldn't be as hard as I thought it would be. I remember noticing one of the girls on the soccer field at some point. She was playing with one of the other boys, the other kids, a younger boy. They were trying to steal the ball from each other and kick it into the goal. Although she was smiling, there was something that caught my attention. Her body language was different. She seemed way more reserved than others who were playing, including the ones on the volleyball court. At times, she would run a little and play. Then other times, her arms were crossed and she'd be sitting on the bottom bleacher. When it was my volleyball team's next turn, I wanted to play, but I just felt this urging to go hang out with this girl. I tend to notice girls who sit out or seem like they don't want to play, but for some reason, they just don't. I know sometimes it's a confidence thing, which I could definitely relate to. It wasn't but a minute or two after this that I went over and just sat next to her on the sidelines. It became clear very quickly that we were struggling to communicate as I didn't speak Spanish and she didn't speak English. Awesome. We tried lavish hand gestures and animated pointing, but in the end, I'm so grateful for smartphones and apps like Google Translate. We had fun typing messages to each other and trying to get to know each other. We exchanged some names and smiles. She even asked to take a selfie together. Apparently, no matter where you are in the world, kids know cell phones and how to work the camera. Then we got up and played with a soccer ball for a while. It was great. It was just a super fun way to spend Saturday night with the kids at New Hope. I didn't know what to expect, but I wasn't expecting us to just jump in with the kids like we did. I really wasn't expecting the kids to respond as they did. Sunday morning, we all headed for church. The same church that I had been at the morning before, but now everyone was, was there, not just the little kids for VBS. We would have thought that you, you were, we were old friends as we gre- were greeted by people in the community with hugs and smiles and laughter. Then I saw her. The girl I got to play soccer with the night before, we exchanged smiles and she came up to give me a hug. I was so excited. And she grabbed my hand and we walked down into the church area together. One afternoon, when my smaller team was eating lunch, one of the missionaries shared some of the girl's stories. I remember the missionary sharing this young girl's name, so I tuned into the conversation a bit more. He made statements about how hard it had been to connect with her, especially for him and some of the other male missionaries. They were being careful to follow her lead, but she was really struggling to trust others. I remember thinking to myself, this can't be the same girl. I asked him to clarify which girl because this was just not at all my experience. He shared her name again, which of course I repeated because my brain just wasn't connecting the dots. I might have actually even said out loud, wait, what, are you sure? Because I had been interacting with this girl in so many positive ways over the previous three days. We would smile and say hi to each other. She'd come up to me or me to her. We would sometimes hug, but there was definite like healthy interaction. The missionary working with us just looked at me and said, that's amazing. That never happens with her. During the rest of our lunch break, he went on to explain why this was such a big deal. She had been placed at New Hope because her mom had been prostituting her out. She was 10 at the time she was found. I don't know for sure how long it all lasted. I didn't want to know. I didn't ask any other questions, even though there were many that could have been asked. However, instantly my heart broke for her. Later that evening, we decided to put on a little talent show for the New Hope kids. Our plan was just to be silly, have some more fun, and wrap up the evening. We knew this is one of our last nights with the kids based on our schedules, so 
it had to be a pretty amazing one. When I walked in, I saw her again, and she was standing off by herself. Her arms were crossed toward the back of the room. I waved and went and sat down in the middle area where most of the people were. I wasn't sitting there but a few minutes when she came up and sat next to me. I smiled so big and gave one of those side hugs, and she was smiling too. I just remember feeling this warmth inside of me, and a little cautious. I just kept reminding myself to let God handle it. When it was my team's turn to perform, we got up and we went to the stage. I looked out and noticed that she had gotten up and went back to stand where she had been when I first walked in. The reality of her pain and trauma hit me again in that moment. I wasn't but a few feet away. There were other adults from our group and from the home and people were on the floor, the other kids at the home. These were all people who loved her. She did not stay there. She had pulled away. After a spectacular performance by my group, we went back to our spot on the floor where then she again came and joined me. We smiled at each other and then kept watching the remaining skits. That night, I remember sharing this story through tears in our team's group time. I did not try to cry, but it was an emotional time on this mission trip. And the harder I tried not to cry, the more the tears seemed to flow. I was wrestling with so many pieces of the week. Why had God led me to this time with this girl? Why did her mom allow this to happen to her? What did the future hold for this precious girl? What in the world did I have to offer her? I was not trained in trauma. I couldn't speak the language. I was not even gonna be a permanent person at the home. Who was I? I remember praying that night asking God for boldness to listen and to follow his will. What else could I do except follow his lead? And here's what I know. God is doing the same kind of things in your life. But it's gonna take you getting off of your agenda and getting on to God pushing the pause button and all the things that you thought you were doing that were so important, but are only temporary. Here's what I know. If your life and your eyes stay fixed on you and your family and your schedule, your life will start to spiral out of control. Because what will happen is eventually you'll turn selfish. You'll look inward. Instead of looking upward and focusing your thoughts on Christ and what he is doing in the world, in fact, Louis Giglio wrote a great book on this chapter, Exodus 3, called I Am Not, But I Know I Am. I know that sounds confusing, but it actually makes sense if you read the book. Louis says this, and if our hearts aren't awakened by majesty, our lives soon shrink into little bits of nothingness. Our days become filled with drama over the ridiculous our complaints fly free at the smallest challenge or difficulty. Our energy and wealth are consumed by what is fleeting, and our chatter becomes dominated by events, people, and things that won't last much longer than the morning mist. And I don't want that from you. I want you to experience God and all of his blessing and all of his provision and all of his love, but it's gonna require you to let go of the but not me gods 
It's gonna require you letting go of the, God is gonna do something great in me because I'm awesomeness. It's gonna require you just to surrender to him and join him in the work he's doing. I'm gonna pray a really dangerous prayer over us in just a moment. I'm gonna ask you to let me pray it as if it were your own words. Before I do that, real quick, there's a yellow card in front of you. It looks like this, and it just says invite, invite. I realize we've had people say, could I get one of these in a like wallet-sized card? No, because they don't fit in our card slots. It doesn't help us. But this little card is simply for you to take to a friend, a neighbor, a coworker, somebody at your school, somebody that you're looking at and you're like, you know what, I think God is up to something there. And just say, you know what, maybe, maybe you'd like to come to church with me sometime. I wanna encourage you to take that card. You take as many as you want, as often as you want. We'll make more, we'll replace them. And just listen and watch and, 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 and feel the heart of God moving in the people around you. And then join him in what he's doing. Now, it's time for our dangerous prayer. Let's pray. <sighs> Heavenly Father, we know that you love us. We are confident of that. We know, God, that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. We don't have to be anxious in your presence, but we do work out our faith with fear and trembling because we realize the awesome power and wisdom that is you. But God, May the reality of your power, may the reality of your wisdom not push us away from you. Instead, God, may we come to a full experience of you so that perfect love would cast out fear. And by casting out fear, God, what would mean is would you open our eyes that we might see what you see and open our ears, God, that we might hear what you hear. And soften our hearts, God, that we would be drawn away from selfishness and drawn into you. That we might join you, Heavenly Father, in what you are doing in the world, no matter the cost. God, my prayer is simply this. But God, it is terrifying to pray. Please, Father, do not leave us the way that you found us today. God, if we came here with baggage about the things that we've done and how we've blown it, Father, would you strip that away from us? Would you take it away and nail it to the cross that we would not look on it anymore and no longer allow our past to define us? God, if we are arrogant and prideful about what we're going to do next, may we find James' wisdom to not be bragging about going and doing this or that, but instead say, if the Lord wills. Father, what we mean is may we surrender to you today killing our own plans and our own dreams and finding ourselves united with you. And God, should it cost us money or time or energy or pain or comfort, God, may we surrender it all. May we lay it all down because there's nothing greater in this world than you and your glory and your name and your kingdom. God, whatever is in us that is keeping us from you, Father, from joining you in what you're doing, strip it away, crush it, destroy it, that it'll never raise its ugly head again. The Father, when we leave here, we would be transformed by your love. And through us, you would transform the world. And all God's people say,